Do you want to show the other person you care about them and you're a good person? But instead of doing that, you know, you, you may have to breathe or bring your mindfulness or whatever it is. If you can put away your defensiveness and instead really try to understand the impact on the other person with questions. Can you tell me more about that? Can you help me understand? Or if they're already telling you, just listen, you know, listen from their perspective, not yours. Hello, and welcome back to the Leaders with Babies podcast. I am delighted to have you join again today. And I, as you know, I've set up this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program because I want to give you access to inspiration and really practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children in a way that works for you. So today's podcast guest is actually someone who I've been wanting to interview for a while. His name is Michael Baran. He is an expert on how to deal with these microaggressions that you might face when someone raises an eyebrow at you because you're picking up your kids or when someone makes a comment because you're rushing out in order to access the breastfeeding room to pump milk. And he's an expert on that and he calls it the subtle acts of exclusion. And the reason why I found that very important is because many of the fellows on our nine-month fellowship program tell me that there's a real issue with subtle acts of exclusions that they're experiencing. And so we wanted to bring in an expert to share their thinking on how to deal with those. If you are, I guess, facing some of those acts of exclusions, and if you do want to progress your career regardless of the circumstances, then I definitely think you should consider applying to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. We'll open it again in spring, but you can register your interest by heading across to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. So have a wonderful rest of the podcast and I hope it's really useful and speak to you soon. A very warm welcome, Michael, to the podcast. I am delighted to have you here. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, what you do for work and who is in your family? Perfect. Thank you. So my name is Michael Barron. I am a senior partner at Inquest Consulting, which is a global diversity, equity, and inclusion firm. We support organizations and you know everything they do from assessment to training and learning journeys to coaching and everything else. So I've been doing this work supporting organizations for about 20 years. Before that, I got my doctorate as a social scientist to really try to dive into questions related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Things like, why? Why do we have these biases in our heads that we wouldn't want to be there? And how is it that cultures may be making some people feel really included and other people feel excluded, sometimes in the most subtle of ways? So I'm going to bring all of that and all the experience to working with organizations these days. I've got my wife, Jill, who is also a social scientist like me, and I've got four children in my family ranging from seven years old to 18 years old, just newly 18. Mm, So you lived to tell the tale. Yes, four children. I've lived and have one starting college right now. So it's fabulous. Wow. The reason why I came across what you do is because you wrote a really thought-provoking book on microaggressions. 
I'm just curious, how did you get into that topic at first? Yeah, well, you know, it's one of those things that is really one of the biggest barriers to inclusion these days in workplaces. So people really feeling welcomed, valued, respected, heard, understood, supported. It's not usually people showing up and think and, and intentionally excluding other people, right? That's not usually what people do, wake up in the morning with their coffee or tea and think, how can I exclude my colleagues at work today? That's not what they're doing. They may be trying to bond with their colleagues or to be curious about them or to be funny with them. And that's the intention. And yet we know those comments, those actions are landing in very different ways for people. The impact is that people actually do feel bad or hurt or anxious or frustrated. And they're happening. You know, the research is out there. These kinds of things are happening so often especially to people with marginalized identities. So maybe people of color or women or people with disabilities, they're happening so frequently and they're causing real problems. I mean, for people, when they happen again and again, they cause physical and mental health problems. That's how damaging they are. For our teams and our organizations, they really threaten inclusion. So it's a serious topic. And I noticed when I would do workshops on the topic, they were some of the most frustrating workshops I've ever done. Because we'd say, okay, you know, you call that black man articulate or well-spoken. This is a very common microaggression. And I'd get very negative reactions to that. First, I'd get people saying, you can't call that a microaggression because I wasn't trying to be aggressive. Extreme defensiveness about the whole concept. Then you'd get people thinking about that word micro which these days means small or unimportant. And they'd, they'd feel slighted if they're experiencing a lot of these. They'd feel like I was saying it's not a big problem when it actually, I know it is. And, and I'm trying to communicate about how much it is. And then that word micro gives other people the idea that this workshop doesn't have to be taken seriously. This talk doesn't have to be taken seriously. You don't really need to adjust your behavior or your words because this is a small problem. And so that's when I got together with a colleague, Tiffany Jana, and we said, hey, maybe we should reframe and rebrand this idea. And that's where we came up with calling these subtle acts of exclusion rather than microaggressions. And that's where the book Subtle Acts of Exclusion was born, which came out last year. So then in the process of writing, I mean, this was a part of the work that I did before, but then in the process of writing the book, just dove even deeper, reading everything that had been written on this topic and listening to stories. And I went around and interviewed a hundred people on the street with a videographer and collected their stories, asking them, what are the things Things that you experience that are quite subtle, but make you feel excluded that other people might not even know about that you would want them to know about. And so we just dove deeper and deeper and wanted to give people a deep, that deeper understanding, as well as some real practical guidelines for how to have good, productive conversations about these things when they happen, because they happen all the time. And so our goal is not to be perfect and never do it. We are going to have subtle acts of exclusion no matter what. But how do we then have a good conversation about it so that 
if it's happening to me, I feel heard and valued and you do things differently. Or if I'm the one who does it, I feel like I hear you and I do things differently. Let's just rewind for a moment. What is a subtle act of exclusion? Can you give me, or a microaggression, can you give me an example? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Maybe a woman, a black woman who says, yeah, someone is always telling me I'm so professional. And she says, well, as opposed to what? As opposed to who? Why are you surprised that I'm professional? Right. That's an example of a subtle act of exclusion or a man who is gay and talks about a past boyfriend and someone pauses when they hear that and they say, oh, okay." But there's this pause which communicates to him, you're not normal in that pause. Or maybe it's a blind man who's walking down the hall and people silently flatten themselves up against the wall to get out of his way. And he says, I know you're trying to be kind and get out of my way, but the way you're doing it makes me feel like I'm a burden and like I'm not normal. And if you just said hi, That would help me get down the hall better. And I might have something I need to ask you about. And I would feel like a full human. Mm. I think it's something I hear so often that people who are pregnant and are still striving at work or people who just want to define things a bit differently and want to do things differently in terms of combining an ambitious career with young children, that they're experiencing that, for example, being told, well, surely now you want to take a little bit of a break and take your foot off the pedal. Ah, oh, you're probably you're probably not interested in going to that conference anymore because of course you want to be with the baby. I you're basically you're not a good mother stay at home looking after the baby rather than go overnight to a conference. And the same for dads actually who are I thought you were so passionate about your career when someone says they're going on trip friendly. So I I mean you you call it subtle acts of exclusion, but some of them are not that subtle. It's like someone scratching you, I find. Yeah. And there's a whole spectrum, right? There are some things that people say or do. I mean, sometimes people aren't given promotions because they have small children at home and someone thinks, well, they're not going to be able to handle this additional responsibility because they've got these small children at home, right? That's not subtle. That's serious, right? So there's a spectrum of sometimes they're quite explicit. Sometimes they're quite intentional on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, they may be things like people jumping out of the way when a blind man walks down the hall, that's really not, they're not in trying to exclude you. They're not trying to do anything harmful. And yet that's the impact. They're quite different and range quite widely. You mentioned about both mental health and physical impact. Can you say more about that? Yeah, these studies that show that when people are subject to these repeated subtle acts of exclusion, and that happens, of course, to people who are marginalized more often, whether that's because of race or ethnicity or gender or sexuality or ability or religion or age, when it happens again and again, it actually causes enough anxiety and stress and frustration that it causes prolonged mental health issues and physical health issues when it happens again and again. And so it's significant. I guess it's a kind of stress, I imagine, that it puts you under if you're constantly poked in that way. 
you're just trying to do your job. You're just trying to get through your day and give your best and feel good. And then out of the blue, you have these interactions, sometimes many in a given day where the person says something and on the surface, they're saying one thing underneath the surface, you're getting a message. It's not explicitly stated, but you're getting a message like you're invisible. You're not normal. You're inadequate. You don't belong. And you're getting these messages, which are terrible things to feel. And the other person would deny they even conveyed that message. So you feel like you're going crazy too, right? And can everybody experience microaggressions? I guess I'm asking because you are a white male. You may have other things that put you in a group that is underrepresented group in leadership. I'm a middle-class white female. What does that mean for microaggressions? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone has the experience of feeling excluded subtly, right? When it's a subtle act of exclusion that happens again and again, it's usually because along a particular dimension of diversity, you're in the marginalized position rather than the position with power. So if we're talking about gender, yeah, I identify as a man, so I'm not experiencing subtle acts of exclusion because of gender. If we're talking about race, I identify as white in the United States, and so I'm not experiencing subtle acts of exclusion based on race. You know, you may not be based on race, but you may be based on gender. If we're talking about religion, I identify as Jewish, and so I do experience subtle acts of exclusion based on religion. All right, so it just depends which access of diversity we're talking about. Interesting. And so to take it to a really practical level, if someone hears this and they have this one person in their business who makes a lot of those remarks that make them feel really uncomfortable, that they don't want to happen, that make them feel like they don't belong at the board table. What's your advice? I hear different approaches. I hear some people say, don't do it, just bite your teeth and pretend you haven't heard it. Others say, no, you have to challenge it. What's your view? Yeah, every situation is different. So there's not one blanket advice that we give people. The best case scenario is when an organization decides, okay, we know these are happening and we're going to really address it. You know, we're going to train our leaders on what this is and how to address it. We're going to work with our managers on it. We're going to give everyone some awareness and we're going to build a culture. We're going to work to develop a culture where we can have openness and transparency around these issues, where we practice giving and receiving feedback about these things, where we have kindness and accountability, and where everyone feels called into the conversation. And we get closer because of it. We build trust, we build authenticity, and we get to know one another and what makes us feel good and included and what makes us feel excluded. And so then if I were to say to someone at work, hey, I know you didn't mean anything, but when you said this, it made me feel like this, then they know what I'm talking about and we can work through it more productively. And even in that case, there are some real guidelines for what's the best practice for speaking up if you're experiencing something like this, or if you just see it happen and you want to be an ally and you want to say something because you want to work in a workplace that includes everyone. So some guidelines for that and some guidelines for getting feedback. If you were the person that said that and you get some feedback about it, 
what's the best guideline for you? So I can give an example, a couple examples of what those guidelines are for listeners who may want to try to start having these conversations because we know they're hard conversations. So first, if you're experiencing a subtle act of exclusion or you want to be an ally, and we need the allies too, because they often don't have the same risk for saying something. So first thing is to just get in that mindset of calling in the person, even if you're calling out the action, call them in. And first you might have to pause the action. You might have to say, I don't even know yet why I'm feeling this, but can we talk about this? Because so many times it happens and you try to think of the perfect thing in your head, but by the time you do, you end up not saying anything because the moment's passed. So just saying something before you even know what you want to say, and then really inviting in that person and trying to explore with them. Hey, these words were used. Can we talk about it? And sharing the impact on you. This made, I know you didn't mean anything bad by this. So assuming good intentions, but when you said it, it made me feel this way, assuming good intentions and explaining the impact on you. That can be really helpful. Now, if you're the person getting that feedback, you have to be able to take it in a way that's not defensive, right? You're probably going to want to defend your intentions. Oh, no, I didn't mean it like that. Oh, no, I just meant this. You're going to want to do that because you want to show the other person you care about them and you're a good person. But instead of doing that, you know, you, you may have to breathe or bring your mindfulness or whatever it is, if you can put away your defensiveness. And instead, really try to understand the impact on the other person with questions. Can you tell me more about that? Can you help me understand? Or if they're already telling you, just listen. You know, listen from their perspective, not yours. So many times people think, well, I don't see what the big deal is. That wouldn't have made me upset, right? Because you're using your own experiences to filter and not theirs. So really putting away defensiveness, understanding impact, getting in a mindset of gratitude. What a gift it is that someone's actually spoken up about this to us. Everyone's trying so hard to be a good person and more inclusive. And that's hard. We're busy. We've got our own stuff going on. But someone's given you a blueprint for being even more inclusive and what a gift that really can be. And then doing your research, typing into Google, why shouldn't I have said this? You know, talking with people you trust and really following through with that other person. In those moments, you have to build the relationship. You have to invest in the relationship. If you take it seriously, you'll build trust and connection. And if you don't take it seriously, you'll just build more distance. It's true. I've read this really good book by Carol Robin, summarizing some theories that have been around before her. But basically, the idea is that you can, in moments of conflict or friction, you can build some of the strongest relationships. So I think that is an argument for speaking up when there is something that grinds you. And I like this idea of just mentioning, hmm, not quite sure how I feel with this. I'm, I'm uneasy. Can you help me explore it? I quite like that because otherwise you have to be ready with a perfect answer. And let's face it, none of us ever are. 
Well, no, especially leaders who everybody may be watching them to see how they react. And you have a split second to answer or to say something or to not say something. And nobody can think that quickly on their feet. And so being able to buy yourself some time, but also signal it's important, right? My impression is that microaggressions are a tool that is sometimes used to solidify status or that people who want to be high status can use to keep other people down, or not necessarily consciously, but subconsciously, that they use it to tell someone, you are not here, we don't want you. If there's a group of elderly white males, nothing against them. But if there's then a young woman with a baby who's doing a presentation and you know her phone is ringing because the nursery wants her to pick up her child, that sort of and then there are raised eyebrows. That situation does happen. And to me, there's something about status there. But what, what do you think from a social scientist perspective? Well, I agree completely. And sometimes it may be conscious. And sometimes it may be based on biases that people have, either conscious or unconscious biases. And, you know, and sometimes it's really just we don't have the familiarity and we just don't know. So To go back to the example of the blind man, it's not like people who aren't blind haven't ever thought about what that might be like, but maybe you haven't spent a day walking next to someone who is blind and you just don't know what it takes to walk down a hall or get a taxi or go to a restaurant. You just don't know. And so you don't have that familiarity. But other times, I I think there's absolutely some intentional or unintentional kind of reproducing power dynamics that happens through these. Yeah, and I so agree with your idea of assuming the best. As part of our fellowship program, which is for leaders with babies and young children, we also have some sessions with line managers of those parents, um, which is very interesting. Quite often, the line managers have absolutely no understanding how they're coming across to the parents. It's very, very surprising. So I do agree with the idea of assuming the best of the person doing the microaggression. But to challenge that, surely there are some situations where there's just behavior that is not on and perhaps in an organization where the HR department is not on it either, and you are you feel alone, faced with lots of microaggressions or subtle acts of exclusions. What's your advice there, aside from changing organization, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if so, if it's not subtle, if it's more intentional, then you're right. It's not good intentions anymore, right? Or if, or if I've given you feedback that this is a subtle act of exclusion and you have ignored it, and maybe I've given it a couple times and you don't do anything differently, it's maybe not the best of intentions anymore. And so that's a different conversation. Right. Ideally, you're you have a system, you can go to HR. There's some recourse for you within the organization. If there's really not, then you have a choice of am I going to just accept this and do my best to laugh it off or to ignore it and to find people who I can maybe connect with, who understand, who get it, right? Might be a business resource group that I can connect with to get support. And I'm going to find support for me, or it may be this environment is not an environment I want to work on and I will find somewhere else to work. I'm extremely conflicted about this because I really want our parents to go to these places 
that are likely to exclude them. I want them to sit around the board table. I want them to be in a room that is so far dominated by elderly white males. And I want that for them because I want them to be in the places of power because we need, I think, for our world to be different. We do need to have more diverse people leading us. It is a difficult one because, I mean, have you got any tips of how to not let it influence your happiness if those acts of exclusion happened? That's a great question. I mean, as my colleague Gloria often says, you've got to be an ally for yourself first and make sure you're taking care of yourself, whatever that means for you. That's absolutely essential. And then, yeah, I agree with you. Certainly, we don't want to leave those spaces to people who have traditionally held power because they're going to be less than inclusive. We don't, that's not good for people. And so, you know, what we would say is, let's work with those people to make those spaces inclusive. And hopefully organizations will recognize, and we know this is happening, that organizations are recognizing that, hey, whether we're talking about our executive leadership team or our board or whatever it is, if there's not enough diversity there, if there's not enough inclusion there or equity, we've got to disrupt that. We've got to go in and work with that organization to make those spaces more inclusive, to get more diversity of perspectives and identities, and to make sure there's equity for all people. Another challenge, I guess. One thing that our parents are often really mindful of is they are the ones who are speaking up. They're the ones who are brave enough. And with the whole fellowship program, the courage is really something we're supporting them with. So they're brave. And then they're also mindful about being branded as a troublemaker. What's your take on that? Yes, it happens, right? So that's one of, when I said these situations are complicated and there's no one easy answer. Sometimes you don't want to be branded as the troublemaker and you have to be aware of your own brand and reputation. And you may decide to not say anything because of that, right? You often have the most risk for saying something. And that's why we really need to build the understanding for allies who don't have the same risk to be able to stand up and say something, right? So for example, when I talk to a group, I'll often tell them about the research that's out there about how women get cut off more than men in meetings, don't get credit for their ideas. In general, this is more true. Then a man says the idea and he gets all the credit. So I'll tell this to groups and the men will often turn to the women and say, well, that doesn't happen here, right? In our organization. And the women can't even believe it. Are you kidding me? Of course that happens here, right? But they don't, it's not happening to them. So they don't necessarily see it or understand it. And so they, they really can't be allies until they can even understand what's happening. But then when we build that understanding, if they're able to interrupt those subtle acts of exclusion or say something when they happen and they don't have the same risk for doing it, that's absolutely essential to really make change. They have their, if you don't have the risk along that particular dimension, then you have the privilege and the responsibility to say something if these values are important at your organization, those values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
That's interesting. So you're saying that different people have different levels of risk for speaking up. So I could say something saying, well, so weird that you cut off Sanjana again, maybe not in that way. And, you know, the impact is she didn't say anything in the next meeting. So for me, that risk would be much lower than for perhaps Sanjana herself to speak up about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It happens frequently and people are aware of it. For example, you know, black women in the United States, they know there's a stereotype of the angry black woman. And they very explicitly would say during our interviews, I don't want to get stereotyped as the angry black woman. That's a big risk for me. And so, you know, I may choose to not say something in that moment. But I wouldn't have that same risk. So I, it's my job then, it's my responsibility then to say something. Mm. Have you ever experienced subtle acts of exclusion? Yeah. You know, I mentioned, for example, based on religion, I sure have. And how did you personally deal with that? So you're obviously an expert, a trainer, a speaker. You've written a book on it, but can you just... Tell us how how you dealt with that situation. It's interesting. Sometimes I do all the best, all my take all my best advice and it still doesn't go well. It's still a really challenging conversation. I often tell this story. This wasn't it wasn't directed towards me, but I was a witness when it happened. I was taking a yoga class and the yoga instructor kept saying she really wanted us to get into the poses, you know, to really give it our all. And she kept saying, don't jip yourself. Don't jip yourself. I don't know if you've heard that. It's sort of a derogatory word for gypsy, which in and of itself is a derogatory word for a group of people. And so I noticed it and she kept saying it. And so after class, I went and did all those things I was supposed to do. I went up to her and I said, hey, I know you don't know anything probably bad about this term. I know about it because I'm a weirdo. I'm a diversity, equity and inclusion consultant. Probably no one else in the class noticed it. But and I told her about it. I thought she would be really receptive. You know, maybe it was my post yoga endorphins. I thought she would kind of say namaste. Thank you. And she didn't. She was she was quite mortified and didn't even look me in the eyes. And, you know, it didn't go great. So I recognize that the situations are tricky, but I bet they also might be effective. I bet she never said that again. Mm. And that's it. I think challenging those things. It's like putting a stake in the ground to say it's not acceptable. And even if it comes out in a difficult way, even if it doesn't go how you want it to go, it's so important to say something. It's because that is what's going to set the boundary of these things not happening so easily anymore. And that's absolutely essential. So assuming it happens in the moment and you're in a big board meeting and you actually never speak to that boss one-to-one because he's so senior, is it okay to say something in a bigger group or what would you do in that situation? Yeah, I mean, it's okay. And there's a lot to think about and consider if you're thinking about real power differentials where your your position could be at risk, right? You could face real retaliation if you were to say something to your boss in a large group, maybe where their boss was present. I would caution people to be careful because we know the reactions are are not always good. So you obviously have a preferred way of giving feedback, which is 
doing it the proper way and talking about the impact it has on you and being very kind and gentle doing that. What's your personal view between doing that and in another in a situation where you don't have time to do that, just setting, you know, either making a joke or just saying or, or raising your eyebrows just so that the other person knows that this is weird and not okay. What's your view on that? Because I imagine I could raise my eyebrows if my boss called me something or, or assumed I was not focused at work because of my kids. But I probably wouldn't feel so comfortable to have a big discussion necessarily with my boss's boss about it. What do you think? Right, right. I mean, the problem with little gestures like that is there are so many different ways to interpret them that the message might not be clear and they may be able to just rationalize it away. I would caution people to really be careful about humor. It's one thing we often hear, well, I diffuse the situation with humor or, and I would caution people in an interaction that's already sensitive and tense. I would be very careful about humor because sometimes that can make things worse. And when you have to think of what to say in a split second, it, it's hard to think of something that perfectly threads the line of, well, I'm, I'm diffusing, but I'm also communicating how much inclusion matters to me in a real way. That's hard to do. I think like you mentioned, just saying something even if it's something as simple as I don't support that, or I, I don't agree with that, or I don't think that's funny. Something as simple as that without having to really explain it all can be effective where you're doing something which is not showing complicity. Yeah, I find it very useful to say I see that differently when I'm, when I'm not in the power, position of power, because it, it demarks very clearly that I don't agree, and yet it doesn't say you said something wrong. I see that very differently. But I think it is so important. I really think it's so important to do it, to challenge it. And especially also if you are in a position of power. So I was on an interview panel a while ago where we chose someone for a very senior role and the black person was second. And we really, and we did choose the Asian person in the end. We chose the Asian person in the end. But I think, actually, this is probably not microaggression, but I think in this situation, it is so important for me to speak up, even though I know I offended the rest of the interview panel. I pretty much said something along the lines, you, you know, we are statistically likely not to notice the qualities of the Black person as much as of the other people. So we need to challenge ourselves. So I think not that, I mean, I've, many times I've done it wrong and I haven't done it properly, but I'm really proud that in that situation I spoke up, even though it came with a personal risk. And I think we have to sometimes speak up and take the personal risk for the purpose yeah. of driving change in society. Yes, absolutely. I love that. You know, people talk about, um, I think it's Mary Frances Winters that started talking about um, instead of safe spaces, let's look for brave spaces. I think it's a nice way to describe it because we can, we can try to create safer spaces, but we can never really be guaranteed of safety. We can all try to be brave in those ways. That's very powerful. I feel that this is an excellent piece of a quote to conclude our podcast on. If someone hears this and they're quite inspired by hearing you and they want to do something tomorrow to change the number of microaggressions in their team, what do you think, what practical thing or what practical two or three things could they do tomorrow? 
So there are a couple of things you can do. One is just is learning, being in a learning growth mindset all the time, really trying to diversify the media that you consume, people that you follow on social media, just get exposure to people who you may not get exposure to. And it might not be you're trying to have a really narrow network, but sometimes that happens. We follow people who are like us. We read things that are from a perspective that's like ours. So trying to diversify your perspectives, I think is really great. Then learn about the real people on your team. We all make assumptions when we meet people, when we work with people, but we don't know them that well. Instead of that, try to set up spaces where we can all share a little bit about ourselves to things we're comfortable sharing. So we really get to know people as individuals rather than we've made up stories about who they are based on our assumptions. So really getting to know people and what they need to feel valued and supported and heard and understood is really helpful as well. And then just kind of get Get in the habit of being attentive for maybe those eye rolls or eyebrows raising, watch body language and check to see if I notice a facial, I think maybe I noticed a facial expression. Did I say something that, you know, landed differently than I intended it? Would you be willing to share that feedback with me? And just being attentive to people in ways you may inadvertently be excluding people. And then, of course, just being more intentionally inclusive of everyone. We know how to be inclusive because we're very inclusive of the people that we're inclusive of. But what about the other people? Who are we passively excluding because we're not intentionally including them? So really being aware of that. I love it. If I were to do intentionally including tomorrow, what one thing could I do? So there are various things. First, try to make everyone feel heard. For example, maybe you're running a meeting and people are sharing. Try to actively make people feel heard. Maybe ask follow-up questions, acknowledge contribution of an idea. Make sure everyone is able to contribute. So that might mean think about the diversity of people and how they like to process information. We've got introverts. We've got extroverts. We have people who like to take their time thinking through something. We've got our fast thinkers. So think about what we need to capture the ideas and make everyone feel included. Maybe that means we send out an agenda before the meeting so people can do some pre-thinking if they like that. We invite everyone into the conversation. If we haven't heard from someone, we open open up a space to invite them to share if they'd like. We say, hey, if you didn't get a chance to share any ideas in this meeting, please feel free to write them down and send them over to me. So we're including people who like to process after the meeting, things like that. We can make sure everyone feels their ideas are heard. It doesn't mean we take every idea or that every idea is a great one or that we say yes to everything. It doesn't mean that. It just means we acknowledge the contribution. And so when people feel, when we agree, when we disagree, when we take the idea and when we don't, people still feel welcomed and valued and respected and heard. That's excellent advice. Thank you very much, Michael. Very enlightening. I've learned a lot and I've been challenged to raise my voice even more. So if people want to find out more about you, about your work, your book, where should they go? 
Yes. So thanks for having me. So the book is called Subtle Acts of Exclusion. You can find it everywhere books are sold, including Amazon and and Barnes and Noble and some local bookshops as well. If you want to learn more about me and my work, you can go to inquestconsulting.com and you can get everything you want to know about me, the book, e-learning programs that we also have around this topic and any support that you might be interested in related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Great. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been really enlightening. Thanks for having me, Verena. Hello, thank you so much for listening today. I am delighted that you've joined me for this conversation. I hope it's been useful. I'm really grateful for everyone who's been sending me messages via LinkedIn, via Twitter, to tell them about the impact the podcast has made. That just really makes me so happy because I'm doing this to make a difference. I love to hear from you. Please keep the messages coming. Tell me what you like. Tell me who you want to hear from and any thoughts that you have. If you want to do me a favor, then definitely do share this podcast we really want to grow it we've got about 800 listeners at the moment per episode i would love to help 10,000 people with this podcast so please do share far and wide and big big thank you in advance and don't forget if you want to join a supportive community of fellows who are ambitious parents with young children then you should go to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship to register your interest There are some subsidised places available for those in financially challenging circumstances. Until next time, have a wonderful week.